Welcome to Uniquely Wired Podcast, where we uncover the beauty and uniqueness of autism. Hi, I'm Nani, your host and passionate advocate for autism. Join me as we explore the world of autism through heartfelt conversations and informative discussions. Welcome back to another episode of Uniquely Wired Podcast. I'm so excited to be here today and have you guys on this community, you know, where we are sharing insights and just uncovering the beauty and uniqueness of autism. So today I have a very special guest with me who I've known for the past, I want to say five and a half years, six? Longer, longer. Um, really? Yeah, this would so be So then year... I want to say seven because my nope. daughter is seven. This would be year nine. Remember, I knew you before you were pregnant with her. Oh my gosh, that's right. 2014. Sheesh. 2014, Time has flew by. <laughs> Look at that. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess it's been nine years. So, um, Jen, if you can please just bless my listeners with letting us know who you are and also how did you become a special education advocate? Um, first off, I want to say that I am completely honored and thrilled to be a guest on your podcast. So thank you so much for this opportunity, Nani. Yes. Um, who is Jen? So I am currently working as a special education advocate and consultant and motivational speaker in private practice. Um, but at the core of who I am is um, I'm a lover of Christ. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm an empath. And the empath is an overarching component and it's interwoven into everything that I do from being a, being a, obviously a lover of Christ to being a mom, to being a wife, to working um, as passionately as I do within the field of special education. I've worked in the field of special education for over two decades, um, came out of grad school and immediately went straight into the field, um, starting off with the Cerebral Palsy Association of Delaware County, which is an approved private school for children with cerebral palsy. And then from there, um, I worked in a variety of different public school settings. I've worked in approved private schools. I've worked in the capacity um, of a special education psych, a psych assist. Um, so, yeah. And, and excuse me, I meant to say a psych assist, not a special education psych, but as a psych assist um, mm. within the behavioral health field. Mm. Um, I've worked um, in homebound. I've worked in extended school year services. I've just completely immersed my field, um, myself, excuse me, in the field of special education. And um, I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. helping those with exceptionalities realize their full potential and providing support to those who are the caregivers, mm -hmm. uh, guardians and parents and yeah. professional providers of those working with those individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I should mention Jen is my, you know, special education advocate, but she is also, I consider her my IEP coach. Um, she has been helping me in this journey. And we've recently, you know, connected when it comes to this. Um, she will see what I will post about my daughter and she just felt the need to reach out and start helping me with this because we have, and, and I've said this before, we have to acknowledge when we need help. <laughs> And when we have to get that help. So, um, you know, I guess my next question would be, how do you define autism advocacy, right? And why is it essential in today's um, society? 
Uh, that's a good question, Nani. Um, autism uh, advocacy includes empowerment, includes education, it includes enhancing understanding, it includes championing for the rights of those who have autism, as well as once again, their caregivers, the professionals that work with them. Uh, it's about helping um, to enhance an overall sense of inclusion across all environments. And, and that's something that we've come some ways with, but we still have a ways to go. Um, there are still environmental agencies where there aren't um, inclusive components. And one of those that, that I know you're championing very strongly for is, and it's, para, it's you know, a paradox, um, is the church community, right? Um, and so that, that's just an example, not to point the finger or anything at them, but there are others as well. And so in the true form uh, or definition of ignorance is to not understand, to not know. Sometimes we fear what we don't understand. Sometimes we are um, judgmental to that, which we don't understand. Sometimes we stereotype things that we don't understand. And so autism advocacy is about broadening the understanding in a comprehensive manner across all environments, not just the school environment. That is so beautiful. I love that. And I think, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of the families that are listening to this podcast may feel lost or they don't know, you know, what are the next steps? Mm -hmm. What is this IEP going to come with? Because again, I didn't know a lot of the things that were in my daughter's IEP because I didn't go to school for this. Right. I'm just, if this school, well, first of all, we should feel like we can trust the school. Let's just, maybe I'm going a different route here, but we're going to go there. Okay. I should feel like I should trust the school. Mm -hmm. So in my case with my daughter's IEP recently, you know, I went to the IEP meeting. I'm thinking, okay, well, these people know what they're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. you're trusting these professionals. They should know what they're saying. Mm -hmm. To then feeling completely played by them because they clearly know what they did. And at the same time, they let you walk out of that meeting thinking everything's okay. Now things begin to unfold. And now you're like, whoa, what in the world just happened here? And it's like, how can we fully trust these individuals when these things are happening to us as parents, and I should say our children as well. Mm -hmm. So first off, I just want to say one of the things that sort of makes my advocacy and consultant practice unique is that, I, as I stated um, at the onset of this interview, I've worked in a variety of school settings. I initially come from the school districts, from the public school district. I've worked in charters. I've worked in approved private school settings. And one of the things that I know about the individuals that are working in these settings is that we're there, and I, I consider myself an educator, we're there for the most part, there are exceptions, right? But we're there for the most part because we truly want to help, right? We don't take Hippocratic oaths as medical professionals do, but it's just unspoken. For the majority of us, we're there because we truly want to be there and we want to make a difference. It's definitely not for the dollar. So... One of the things that I work with parents on and with school districts on is understanding each other's perspective. Um, 
initially as an advocate, I, at the time that I first started my practice in 2006, I did not have, um, I had um, two children at the time. Um, and then throughout my practice, I had a third and none of them had any type of identification of exceptionality. And a lot of times advocates are born out of the parental front where they have a child with an exceptionality and they immerse themselves in learning as much as possible about their child's exceptionality that they become subject matter experts to an extent and start to champion for the rights of others. That was not my experience in becoming an advocate. I came from the school system. And I knew that I had something unique to offer parents because I'm going to bring to you sort of like, you know, a behind the scenes, right? I right. understand what the people on the opposite side of the table are thinking and mm -hmm. doing and the why behind why they're thinking and doing it. And I can give that information to my parents. Subsequently, fast forward of my three children, two of them do have an exceptionality. Um, and so now I understand it even more so. I understand it not just as a professional, but also as a parent. And so I, I get it when you say, like, how can we trust these individuals when the IEP may have some mistakes, mistakes that may, in fact, result in a lack of a free, appropriate public education, FAPE, which is a cornerstone under IDEA of special mm -hmm. education services. And so that I, I implore my parents to understand that, you know, educators are human. They do make mistakes. Um, and it is incumbent upon parents to know as much as possible and to know what you don't know so that you can secure the assistance of a professional who may be knowledgeable or who should be knowledgeable and That's can provide good. you with that that um, level of knowledge that just mm -hmm. the regular lay parent would not have. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about how can you trust, um, I think that, you know, it's important to understand what your child's IEP should contain. And understanding that you're not going to know everything, but that you are looking at um, benchmarks of progress. Because yeah. in those instances, you'll be able to catch if, in fact, there's something that has been missed or overlooked in your child's IEP. Mm. And um, from there, you know, you understand that you can request an IEP meeting at any time. And the reason why it's set forth like that is because, you know, you know, progress may be hindered and there may need to be a change, something um, adjusted in the way that um, a student is being instructed or the type of therapies that they are receiving. Mm -hmm. And so we have measures in place from a federal, state, and local level, as long as parents understand what those protocols and practices are to sort of, you know, uh, mitigate, not necessarily mm -hmm. catch, not catch if, if a school district or a school makes a mistake, but to bring it to their attention, have mm -hmm. some awareness, and then right. mitigate so that we're not waiting the full year to come back to the table, right, for the child's annual IEP and That's realize, good. oh, my goodness, we should have been doing something different, mm -hmm. you know. so That's really good. And I think, you know, I didn't know a lot of the things, right? you know, that you brought up to my attention. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm so grateful, you know, that now I feel like, to be honest, I've never felt so prepared for an IEP meeting the way I feel. I'm so serious. And I'm not saying that because of you here, because you know, right. I've told you this and I tell everybody, I'm like, man, you have to get yourself with somebody that can review your child's mm -hmm. IEP from a professional standpoint, because you're going to look at it as a parent mm -hmm. <laughs> and we may find a little more, you know, mistakes, but I feel like a professional is going to look, yes, they're going to look at your point of view, but they're going to look more at the bigger picture. And that's important. Right. Um, the right. legal aspect, I should say. Absolutely. My next question for you, Jen, would be, what are some common misconceptions um, about autism that you often encounter in your 
work, you know, what you do. Right. Um, and how do you address them? I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> and please, by all means, feel free to share whatever's in your heart. Um, so, you know, we, not unlike most exceptionalities, there are, again, myths come from a lack of understanding, right? And so, again, that's a part of the whole advocacy component is debunking, dispelling those um, stereotypes um, that come when you know just a little bit enough to be dangerous, which you truly don't understand. Um, one, one common myth about autism is that all children with autism are nonverbal. Completely not true. Completely not true. And um, it, it's a spectrum. As, as our, you know, most exceptionalities, and I've said that, right? Um, but autism is the only one that actually carries that connotation in its name. And rightfully, uh, for good reason, because it is, it's such a broad spectrum. You have children who are nonverbal, and then you have children who are chatty Cathy's. So um, that's one myth. And when I come across it, um, I remind people that, as Autism Speaks would say, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. That's it, right? Um, it's not definitely not a one-size-fits-all. Um, there are overarching characteristics to this neurodevelopmental condition, for sure, right? But there's variances. And so being nonverbal is one myth that, you know, I, I oftentimes have to dispel. Another one is that um, if you have autism, that you are savant. Again, not true, not necessarily true. Some are, some aren't. Um, I, I tell people that autistic children are like any other children. They have a set of strengths and they have a set of areas of need. They're like all people. You know? That is so good. That, that, that was so good right there because I think it's so true. Like mm -hmm. they look at autistic individuals like, oh my God, there is something wrong. Like they're not able to do this. They're not able to do that. That we forget there are things we can do as neurotypical Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Like there are things that I struggle with. Right. But yeah, I know my strengths and I know what I can bring to the table. But why are we so fixated? Okay, I'm going to say it. why we become so fixated on what that individual cannot do versus what they can do. I believe um, a part of it is due largely due to another myth, which is that all children with autism have behavior problems and all children with autism do not have behavior problems. There's not behavior problems. It's communication problems. And it's a huge difference. So every behavior has mm. a reason. Every mm. behavior, what you do, what I do, the next person does, what someone with autism does. Every behavior has a reason. And, and when by you that you mean, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. by that you mean anything that we do that might be wrong mm -hmm. or that's just not okay for society, there's something that has triggered that. Absolutely. It's like trauma. When we go through trauma in life, mm -hmm. whatever it was that you went through as a child or even as an adult. Mm-hmm. As you grow up, certain things are going to trigger that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's like when our children have a certain behavior, mm -hmm. because yes, there are kids that are autistic that have behavior challenges. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, there are ways that we can work with that. And that's when, you know, ABA therapy plays a big role mm -hmm. in because they mm -hmm. help a lot with those 
um, challenging behaviors mm-hmm. and we want to decrease those behaviors so we are able, you know, to just, I guess, regulate in a way where our children are able to regulate, right? right. So, like, if there's something that my daughter is doing that may not be appropriate for society or as she gets older, because, you know, there mm-hmm. are some behaviors that are cute when they're little. Younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But as they get older, it's not right. going to be cute anymore. Correct. So we want to make sure, you know, we work on that. So I, I love that you mentioned that and you brought that up. Yeah, no, because, I mean, a lot of times what, what people perceive as behavior, um, misbehaviors, um, um, and, and that manifest into behavior challenges comes from one of the symptoms or characteristics of autism, pretty much no matter where you are on the spectrum, is communication difficulties. And you can be, like I said, you could be nonverbal, you could be verbal, but regardless of where you are on the spectrum, there's communication difficulties, right? And there's social interaction difficulties. Um, and so understanding how to empower our children with autism or autistic children with the ability to communicate effectively you know, whether you're using a total communication system, whether you're using, you know, solely AC, whatever it is, empowering them with communication and then also addressing the sensory component, because that's another symptom um, that oftentimes individuals or autistic children will present with is the self-regulation and the sensory input that they struggle with at times. So it's about understanding those components. And if you're not versed or you don't have experience in working with an autistic child, then just from the outside looking in, it looks like a behavior difficulty. It looks like all these children have behavior problems, but that is not it. So again, that's where being a mouthpiece and and educating individuals about what autism is and what autism isn't comes into play. That is so good that you said that. Um, Just yesterday after church, we went to have some friendlies and um, (laughs) there was this lady on the other side of the room in her table with her family and I'm right here I'm clearly giving her eye contact because I'm already getting irritated at the fact that she just keeps looking over and I'm just confused as to why she keeps looking over so I'm really trying because I said okay I just had a whole lot of cheeses number one okay <laughs> okay um <laughs> number two I know Jesus is teaching me you know I gotta show grace So I'm really trying to put that to practice. But the way she was looking at me wasn't a pleasing way, you know, for me to feel any any better. So anyways, my son is sitting in the high chair right next to me. So obviously she's looking at him. Jacob has lots of sensory needs, lots of sensory challenges. And he has to always carry with this chewy, which is a tea, technically supposed to chew on it. But he doesn't. He just rather hang around with it. And he's looking at YouTube videos and he gets really excited and starts stimming. And I guess she's just looking at him because he's doing all this verbal stimming, you know, lots of noise with his mouth. And I'm like, I'm literally doing this to his mouth. I'm like, buddy, (laughs) like it's becoming so much. So I'm getting overstimulated on the other hand. At the same time, I'm dealing with people staring. So, I mean, it's just, okay. can we talk about that? Because as parents, we're becoming so overstimulated because you're dealing with it all. You're trying to calm your child down at the same time, trying to deal with people because we get it. We'd be like, ah, I don't care what people say, you know, but deep down we do. We do care. And it does matter. Right. 
My daughter's also happy. So she's looking at him. I don't know. At that moment, I just felt so overwhelmed. So you saying, you know, the lack of education, people not being aware that this is how it looks. But to them, it's going to look like this kid is not behaving correctly. But deep down, it's not that he's not behaving correctly. He's just having that sensory seeking moment that he doesn't know yet because he's only four years old. He doesn't know how to manage it or how to, you know, I don't want to say behave, but I guess how to cope with it. I guess it's a better way to say it. Um, how to cope with his sensory challenges in public. And the only way he's going to learn that is by being in public. And so the public has to understand that, you know, um, and, and again, everybody's level of understanding is not going to be the same. That's an unrealistic expectation. Um, I know when I used to work for the Timothy School, which is um, an APS for children with autism, we did a lot of community-based education. And, um, you know, sometimes um, we would have, and, 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 and it was contrived, right? So if we took them to the, to the aquarium, um, we, you know, did our, our homework and we took them on a day and we can, we worked with the New Jersey aquarium and the best time to take them. If we did, you know, the horse, um, drawn carriages through old city, again, we were contrived. We were very deliberate in what we did, but we also at times would have little handouts that we would give, you know, depending upon the behavior, um, that, a child may start to engage in for whatever reason, you know, um, so that, you know, to be fair to them so that they had some level of understanding um, and also to, to protect the child to some extent as well. Because again, if you don't know, you don't know. I do feel like though we've come quite a ways um, with respect to understanding what autism is from a layperson's perspective, there's so much more work to be done. But when you think about how we came from, you know, um, uh, what was it, O'Connor's um, first thoughts and papers in the uh, 1940s to then Hans Asperger's, who was definitely more progressive in his thoughts. Uh, then you had um, Rain Man. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Dustin Hoffman came out in the 80s. Now, when that came I'm out, I about to say, you know, I was born in '94. I know, okay? I know, but it's one to check out. Feel older, but it's one to check out because yes, what it did. Yes, what I'm going, where I'm going with this is, is it opened up people's eyes because you know another thing too is that you know yes the the um, identification of individuals with autism has definitely increased. You know, we're at what is it? You know, one in thirty six. Um, right now, um, which is up from one in 44, which is where we were, you know, not that long ago, according to the CDC. And then you're talking four and 10 boys, one and 10 girls. But the truth of the matter is, is, and, you know, people are like, oh my goodness. And that's where Wakefield's whole thing about the vaccines came out, right? Oh my goodness. It must be. But the truth of the matter is, is we started to be able to identify because there was more knowledge about it. Um, Rain Man did do a lot for society with respect to understanding, you know, this condition called autism, which prior to you, I mean, really, there really wasn't much um, understanding or knowledge about it at all before the 80s. Right. And then, you know, from there, we went and we um, started to enhance the ease with which one could be diagnosed with autism, because prior to the late 80s, early 90s, 
diagnosing was very, very um, difficult. And it was specific specialists that you had to get your child in front of in order to be able to get a diagnosis. And so as it became, as diagnosing became more readily available and our understanding, um, the medical profession's understanding of autism um, grew, it, you know, I, Consequently, we started to diagnose more individuals with autism. And it's not that there weren't individuals with autism where all of a sudden, you know, there's, you know, so many more. Yes, it is increasing, but there are reasons too that speak to, you know, that that whole piece. And back coming full circle, so talking about just the public's understanding of autism, there's more work to be done. Um, but you know, I think as long as we have um, professional organizations that are out there that are helping to broaden people's understanding. And as long as we have people such as yourself um, out there um, who are raising awareness and helping people to truly understand the instances and experiences like you, what you shared from yesterday um, will hopefully, hopefully um, become lesser and lesser and lesser. That's so good that you share that. Share that. I'm gonna have to watch that movie, right? <laughs> I wonder if my husband has watched it. But I mean, he I... was a savant. He was, and that's part of the reason where that whole idea of oh, if you have autism, you're a savant because we don't have a whole lot of movies that were as, I guess, as popular as that one was. Um, you know, and so that's sort of where that sort of came out from. It's like, oh my goodness, if you have autism, you are no, not necessarily right. right. That's so good. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. I think that was that was a really good insight. Um, my next question would be, you know, how do you collaborate with parents, educators and other stakeholders um, to ensure that the needs of autistic individuals are properly addressed within the ed education system? Because I know that's one of your main um, focuses. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm just embarking once again um, into the advocacy and consultant world, coming from a charter uh, where I was the director of specialized services. And even prior to, um, I would say when you ask me, how do I go about advocating and collaborating with, with the individuals? Um, it depends on what role I'm in. So in my current role, it looks like providing um, resources and supports for individuals, whether they be educators or whether it be parents. And that's one of the things um, that I deliberately put into place on my social media platform is that I'm not just speaking to parents. I'm not just speaking to educators. I'm not just speaking to therapists. I'm speaking to all, right? Because I have experience, personal and professional, and in all of those realms. And it's the whole idea of us the the strength and the power that comes from the collaboration when we um, are working um, with understanding of one another. And that's my biggest focus is the whole the whole idea of the power behind collaboration. And, um, you know, right on down to, you know, community mapping and those agencies within the community that we can pull into our support system as we work with schools to make sure that we are exhausting everything that we can exhaust to expedite the progress of our autistic children um, and being as creative as possible um, 
not being stuck with, this is the way we do things, but what are some additional ways that we can do? What are some different ways that we can do things? And not for nothing, while, while the COVID pandemic was, you know, definitely devastating, there was definitely some silver linings that came out from that as well. You know, the whole idea of ingenuity is the great disruptor. And while it was, you know, had very negative disrupting effects, it also had some very positive disrupting effects. And so education need not look the way that it did look prior to March 13th of 2020. Um, we are opened up to uh, just a, a wide array of being able to integrate technologies and collaborate with professionals, you know, beyond our scope of just our school building. That's so good. I love that. I mean, I think you're doing a phenomenal job, you know, because like you, you said, you're not just educating educators, you're not right. just educating parents or a therapist, but you're also educating, you know, the community. <laughs> Just community. Right. I mean, social media is so big. It's huge. You know, you can choose what you want to share on there. Mm -hmm. This is going to stay on the internet for life. So exactly. what is it that you want to share on those platforms? So right. I think that's so good that you're doing what you're doing. Um, another question I wanted to ask you was, what are some, um, you know, resources and organizations that you recommend to individuals who want to learn more about effective autism advocacy strategies? Okay. Um, there's a myriad of them out there. Um, I definitely am a proponent for Autism Speaks for the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, which is what's unique about them is they are um, a network of individuals who have autism and it's run, it's run by them, right? So who better to understand and to be able to provide insight than an individual or a group of individuals who have autism themselves, right? Um, obviously, you have the Autism Society, you have the ARC, you have the National Council on Disabilities. Um, they do a lot with, and all these organizations um, definitely um, address legislation, which is huge too. Let's not forget about the importance of research, the importance of funding. Um, you know, th that's uh, a huge component of advocacy as well. Um, as a part of my practice too, is to not just educate and empower, um, you know, individuals working in schools and parents and therapists, but to also address those leaders um, on the Hill, address those leaders at our state, address those leaders locally uh, to make sure that they have an understanding of what our needs are as we, you know, work to, to just make sure that we are doing all that we can to support individuals with autism. I think um, in addition, looking at, uh, local supports, local parent networks that are out there to support um, your your needs as a parent um, of a child with autism or an autistic child. I think that reading, um, I know, what is it? Um, Thinking in Pictures by Temple um, uh, Grendon was, is definitely um, a, a good book to read. I think Neurotribes by Steve Silberman is another one that's like really good and powerful to read. So um, there's a few of the professional resources and organizations that I, you know, belong to and that I advocate for um, and encourage parents to, to tap into. That's awesome. And of course, I'm going to be sharing your um, email on mm -hmm. the podcast. So you guys can always reach out to Jen, you know, if you have any questions, whether it comes to advocating or your child's IEP, 
she's a great resource. You know, I think obviously I'm not downgrading those that are just starting, you know, to become special, you know, needs advocate or, you know, whatever your title may be in the education, special education world. Um, But I think, you know, it's always great, especially if it's something so deep in your child's IEP or just like you're really new to this, you know, you just get in a diagnosis and you really don't know. I think it's best to educate yourself with someone that has been in this a little longer, you know, a little more than a year. I don't know. What what do you think, Jen? No, I would definitely agree. I think that um, experience is important. And experience, again, not just, you know, in the school setting, but experience in working with behavioral health professionals, experience working with with parents, other parents of of children who have autism. Um, I think um, having some experience in the the advancements, right, that have taken place within the field of autism and the changes that have happened within education, within, you know, the, what the requirements are and understanding local state and federal policy is also huge when you're selecting your advocate. Yeah. 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 That's, that's very good. Um, I guess to end this episode, because I, I really think you gave, I mean, I really don't have much to say because I wanted you to really bless us. Um, (laughs) not just with your presence, but just with your knowledge. And I think you gave some really good insightful points. So I, I just thank you for that. But my last question would be for you, what advice do you have, um, for parents, and even educators who are just embarking into the journey of autism, you know, because you have been in this for so long right? and you've seen so many things. So what is it, you know, what, what is that one advice? Gosh, it's not one. It's a lot. So indulge me, but I would say um, first educate yourself, educate, educate, educate yourself. I can remember the first time I worked um, with, children with autism. I was at the Timothy school and I was working in ESY and I had, um, I was a lead instructor. I had maybe eight boys ranging from 12 to 14. And I had individuals that were there during the whole school year as my assistant. So they definitely were subject matter experts. They definitely had more experience than I did. And we're in circle time and we're doing our morning meeting. And my silly self says, Someone, uh, one of them said something and, and it was kind of funny. And I was like, <laughs> get out of here. I lost my whole class. They commenced to picking up their chairs and were walking out the door because I said, get out of here. Educate yourself. No so now. way. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. That was, that was actually funny. That was, <laughs> you know, but. I mean, I was mortified wow. because I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, no, 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 come back. And and the assistants were looking at me like, you dumb. Mm. Like, you don't know better than to. So the whole idea of, again, it's a spectrum. You know, it's not a one size fits all, but there are definitely some characteristics that are overarching for any individual that's on the spectrum. And 
you know, so the importance of educating yourself, understanding what those symptoms are, and then understanding how they manifest in your particular child is important. And if you're an educator, understanding the variance of how the different symptoms, uh, whether it be social interaction, whether it be communication difficulties, whether it be sensory uh, difficulties or needs, you want to make sure, including also the repetitive um, restrictiveness that also comes and is oftentimes a symptom of autistic children. You want to make sure that you understand that. You want to make sure that as a parent, you're connecting with other parents. You definitely need to connect with other parents. There's strength in, in having alliances. There's strength in being able to share your wins. And they're your wins, you and your child's wins, as well as your struggles with other individuals who can truly empathize um, not be sympathetic, but truly empathize, which comes from experience and understanding and knowing. Um, I would say obviously advocating for your child or advocating for your student, because if you're an educator, you know, you'll have children that definitely, um, and, and speaking of as far as inclusion goes, you want to make sure that you're able to advocate for your student and you want to make sure that your general education um, cohorts or colleagues understand as well. So you want to be an advocate regardless of whether you're a parent or whether you're a teacher. Um, whether you're a parent or a teacher, you want to embrace uh, neurodiversity. If you're a parent, it looks a little bit different because that's your baby. And so that's right. there's a process. There's a process, mm -hmm. which you, you talked about in a couple of your first episodes. Um, yeah, that's very real as a mom of children with exceptionalities. It's very real. <clears throat> um, so go back and watch those episodes. If you haven't seen those episodes, yes. we'll touch on it. Yeah. But you want to make sure that um, as a parent, you are embracing that neurodiversity and that you are um, championing it and you are educators and parents using a strengths based approach in mm. everything that you do. Um, whether you are like what Fiorella was talking about, I think it was in episode um, six of your podcast about, you know, ABA therapies and that sort of thing. If, if you are going to go that route, you want to make sure that you um, do your research and that you understand yes. everything that you need to understand, but that your therapist is using a strength-based approach. When you talk about replacement behaviors, right? You want to make sure it's strength-based. If you're an educator, you want to make sure that you tap into that child's strength to address those areas of need. It's going to make for a much less frustrating experience for you, the child, and your classroom on um on as a as a classroom, just in general, on, on large. Yeah. Um, early intervention, moms, dads, guardians, grandmoms can't impress upon enough the importance of early intervention. It makes a huge difference. It makes it a huge difference. So and you want it's almost like Honestly, it's not almost. It is the preparation mm -hmm. for what's getting ready to start, right? For that mm -hmm. beginning of the journey. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to go straight into the journey without taking those first baby steps. And that's just in general. Like, we tend to just, like, jump. Jump the boat without even knowing right. how to swim. Right. And that's the truth. So I think... Take those baby steps, mm -hmm. start easy, get mm -hmm. into that early intervention, get a feel of what it is when your child is mm -hmm. in public education, you know, versus being at home. So, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and so, you know, you know, and what what the precursor to early intervention is, is making sure you maintain your child's well child visits. You have to because the doctor, your pediatrician is going to most likely would be the first one to identify if the child has some sort of delay mm 
Yes. Um, you know, with respect to milestones and early intervention oftentimes will come before a diagnosis, such as you discussed in your podcast, it, you know, early intervention was there before yes. the formal diagnosis. So you want to make sure that you are exhausting that. Um, I think it was um, Lily, I think in podcast five that talked mm -hmm. about the uh, importance of um, having structure and schedules and maybe, you know, using visuals at home as a parent saying yes. that's something that works in home and school. So that's goes to my parents and my educators, visual, 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 simple Grandin talks about it, you know, thinking mm -hmm. in pictures, it's real. So, yeah. you know, those are just, you know, some of the things um, that I think that, that we can do and, and building a supportive environment. Um, my parents and my educators, parents, your family, your, your extended family, educating them, helping them to be understanding so they can be supportive. Right. My educators, making sure that you educate your classroom, your students on the fact that we all are different. We all are unique. We all have strengths and areas of need. And this is what it looks like in this classroom. We help and support each other. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah. That was awesome, Jen. Thank you so much for just everything for being here for giving of your time to really educate again not just parents and educators that are listening but just the community in general right so i think that was really really good and about the schedule just to touch base on that really quick mm -hmm. i think yeah it works at home and in school but i think if we started at home mm -hmm. we can take that to the school setting oh absolutely and it makes life so much easier because you should know your child so Let's say for those that are just starting school or, you mm -hmm. know, your child is just starting school this year, mm -hmm. just make sure, you know, you're building that communication because we spoke about that on right. episode five with right. Lily. Yes, building that did. communication is crucial. Mm -hmm. Don't wait until the middle of the year. Do no. that now. Take advantage exactly. now. You know, you have to put yourself out there as a parent for your child. Absolutely. Especially when they can't communicate, you know, when they can't really express. For sure with their words. So yeah. is there anything yeah. else you wanted to, to say? I think just that, you know, there are, um, again, these professional organizations uh, will give you a, a wealth of, of opportunities from webinars for educators to um, support groups and support systems and ideas and uh, resources to parents. But also from the local level, you want to make sure that you are um, connected and are aware of the different types of offerings that um, the community has to, to provide to your children, whether it be different types of um, uh, sensory opportunities or special days at, you know, please touch museums to the aquarium, to movies, to, to all of that. Um, I have a, a colleague that I used to work with who is about to open up, I think later on this month, I think it's called jungle land. It's in Malvern and it is going to be an amazing, um, area to learn and play for children, um, for oh autistic children, but for, for other children as well, you know? Yeah. And so it's the whole idea of being inclusive, um, oh, yes, it's designed that. with the autistic child in mind, but mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, neurotypical siblings will be able to enjoy the environment with, with their sibling as well. And so you just want to yeah. make sure that you're tapped into, um, yes. what your environment, your community has to offer. 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm, interested I'm really in excited. That. I'm, I'm really excited for her. I'm that's excited so for her, for sure. For sure. And then also your social media. Um, we talked about professional organizations, but, you know, there's definitely social media platforms out there um, that, you know, you definitely want to make sure that you're tapped into um, as a yeah. parent. Um, yeah. Whether it's Moments of Joy, that's a podcast, right? Yes, she. it is. It is a podcast. I'm actually having her as a guest next week. Oh, Awesome. You guys are in for a treat. Um, but she also has an IG. So, you know, you know, obviously mom of awesome siblings. I don't know. Some beautiful young woman who, um, I don't know, is a heck of a mouthpiece for the autistic community. Uh, she has that page. Uh, of course, it's yes, uniquely yes. wired again. So, yes, I mean, yes. you know, you want to make sure that you're tapped into and connected with the various resources that are out there in yeah. the world of social media. Yeah, because there is so much that, you know, the doctor would not tell you obviously, mm -hmm. because they're doing what they have to do and that's it. They'll get rid of you, mm -hmm. but they're not going to provide you with those resources, especially if you don't ask. Right. You know, so it's huge. Um, I think this was such an insightful episode. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave that review. Um, I think Jen provided us with some very amazing insights. And I'm, I'm just grateful, Thank you. Jen, again, to have I'm you honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I'll see you guys again on another episode. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected, please subscribe to my podcast on your favorite platform. Don't forget to leave a review and share my episodes with your friends and family.